This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Bob Lane. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School by night. And my day job, I'm a commercial real estate lawyer practicing for 40 years. And I'm now a partner at the law firm of Stevens & Lee based here in Philadelphia. We're live at noon Eastern on Fridays, followed by Behind the Markets at 1 p.m. Eastern. As always, you can access past shows via our on-demand feature. If you're listening between 12 noon and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 16th, the day before St. Paddy's Day, we're live in the studio for your questions, so feel free to call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. If you're listening at any other day or time, please email your questions and comments to businessradio at SiriusXM.com and I'll be happy to address them on my next show or by email. So again, if you want to join our conversation or ask a question, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, and remember to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. Well, my guest today is one of the foremost real estate personalities, developers, based here in Philadelphia, but with projects all over the place we're going to hear a lot about, David Marshall. David's the chairman and CEO of Amerimar Realty Company, a national real estate investment and development company based in Philadelphia. And Amerimar has acquired, developed, and operated a multi-billion dollar portfolio of properties. And we're going to hear about a number of them. Some of them here in Philadelphia, which are really, I think, indicative of what's going on in in major cities all over the country, and also uh, some other projects that they have uh, in other cities. But without going into any more detail myself, I'm going to welcome you, David. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Thank you, Bob. And uh, thank you to all my loyal listeners, (laughs) both of you. (laughs) <laughs> uh, why don't we start off? Um, you, you're uh, been in this business uh, even longer than I have, if if, can, if possible, um, and uh, have a great background in terms of how you got to where you are. Uh, can you tell us your story. I started a real estate company while I was at Wharton. That was a junior, and uh, that was up in New York State. Uh, I picked that spot because the Tappan Zee Bridge was just being finished, the first Tappan Zee Bridge. And I figured this county's going to grow like crazy. And we started a mortgage company. We were the only mortgage company in Rockland County at the time, as I recall. And uh, then I went in the Army for a couple of years after I graduated from Wharton. And uh, after I came out of the Army, I went to work uh, with one of the companies that we had done business with, which was uh, Colonial Mortgage Service Company, which was owned by Atlas Credit, a Philadelphia-based company. So you started in the uh, lending business. Yes, that's right. Yeah, which is always a good background for those to develop because, as we'll learn, where do people, uh, how do people decide to develop? It's if they can get the money. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. So how did you morph from uh, from that side of the, the industry into, into the, the building and developing? The real estate market was going along fine until the late uh, 1960s, and then the money started getting very tight. And there was something called a new real estate investment trust industry. REITs. And we started a REIT for the Philadelphia National Bank, which had acquired Colonial Mortgage Service Company. And I was responsible for writing the initial prospectus and uh, doing the roadshow. And uh, we uh, we did a pretty decent job. There were about 200 REITs that came out in 1970. And by 1975, about 190 of them had gone bankrupt. And we were one of the 10 left standing, and uh, the Bass Brothers from Fort Worth, Texas, became our largest shareholder. And after a few years, they asked me to join them and run a real estate company. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about the uh, the evolution from when you were with uh, Amera Bass, um, with the Bass Brothers, to Amera Mar for Marshall when you when you took it over, because that's a fabulous story and instructive. But I want to take a step back on the on the re. I think so many people have forgotten about, because real estate investment trusts, REITs, REITs, uh, for our listeners, are such uh, you know, well-known investments today and for the last 10 or 15 years, I'd say. But back in the 70s, there was a major scandal 
Um, and as you said, there were very few of them left standing. What, what happened back then? There were companies that were trying to predicate their success on how big they were, not how good they were. And I remember the, my president of the, of the REIT and president of Colonial Mortgage, Vic Schlesinger, uh, he and I sat down one day at a REIT conference, and we were listening to one of the REITs and say, this guy says, I'm going to be the biggest REIT in the world. And Vic and I looked at each other and said, we don't want to be the biggest, we want to be the best. And that was really the start of how we were building our quality. And it was, uh, we had a very, very good, intense board that was uh, approving the loans that we uh, brought in to them. It was a REIT that was not only a mortgage REIT, but also a, an equity REIT. And uh, we were quite successful. But uh, but th- what was the scandal that, that when they were big but not good, but uh, there was a, a real crisis that happened um, in, in the 70s? Because I'm going to get to a, what, you know, what that led to. Is, well, yeah. it would, partly it was just getting over leveraged, uh, right. making loans that were just un, you know, unable, unbelievable. Uh, I remember we had uh, a loan that was brought to us in Texas, and one of our trustees went down there to look at it, uh, actually Dave cool. Soms, and he went down to look at it, and he came back and said, it's 500 miles from the nearest cow. <laughs> I mean, because their fees were predicated on their size, not right. on their quality. Yeah. And we said that doesn't, you know, the size does not matter. We we're trying to do, you know, high quality. Yeah. And so this is one of the uh, things that we were uh, contending with. So when, when, when REITs really fell out of favor back in the, in the, in the middle, late 70s, um, you know, in order to uh, encourage real estate investment and development, you know, Congress and our tax laws really uh, made it very, very uh, uh, productive and advantageous for investors to invest in real estate pretty much directly through syndicated limited partnerships. And uh, there was a whole wave from the late 70s through December 31st, 1986, specifically, <laughs> where, where syndicators were, were building and developing and getting investors, you know, doctors, dentists, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, people invested directly in those kind of pro- products um, because the tax advantages were so great. And then, of course, the Tax Reform Act of 1987, effective January 1, 1987, knocked out all those tax benefits because there was a similar problem to what you're talking about. The... the um the industry went through all kinds of uh, problems. The, uh, the federal government stepped in and tried to make all lending institutions the same. And the tax advantages that were uh, had by the, the savings loan industry, they had certain parameters and they had to have X number of percent, I think it was like 80% in residential mortgages. And then uh, because, and they got a, an ability to pay their, uh, their invested, not their investors, their uh, depositors a higher interest rate than the commercial banks. So they were encouraged to make more loans, and they were put into a situation where they were making FHA and VA loans, and then when they made the, the taxes the same, basically the same as commercial banks, you had a group of mom-and-pop uh, savings loans that decided that they had to compete, and they got into ground loans, they got into joint ventures, they got into mm-hmm. equity investments, and they got their head handed to them by uh, the... Uh, the real estate community. Yeah, and we had high inflation and high real estate appreciation back from, because I know this is how I grew up as a young real estate lawyer doing these deals from 1979 through 1986. Um, And uh, they were just, you know, everybody assumed that real estate was going to be 10% more valuable next year than this year. So you had lenders, these mom and pops that you're talking about, were lending on appraisals and feasibility studies and projections that said, okay, they'll be worth... 10% 10% more next year so we could lend 100% now and uh, it'll will you know be well uh, uh, secured next year and the year after there was another element as well and that was the tax uh, the the income tax advantages of right. investing in real estate and the syndicators would go to the uh, the investors and say you have two choices you can pay your income tax or you can invest in this office building that I'm going to build and as a result of that they said well we have nothing to lose Let's just invest in the office building, and if it goes well, we're going to own a piece of a very successful office building. And if it doesn't go well, we would have had to pay taxes anyway. As a result of that, there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, office buildings. They were the, the nickname for them was see-through. Right. They were totally vacant, and you could see through them. And then they changed the tax laws and said, we can't do that anymore. You can't deduct the interest rate. You can't deduct your investment 
uh, unless it's uh, a real investment. And so as a result of that, there was a call on these uh, properties, and you had to pay capital gains. I mean, that was just horrible. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, shorten the, uh, yeah, the well, pain level. But. But, 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 and so what that led was for the later 80s and 90s, I know I spent a lot of time working out and re positioning and negotiating with lenders and investors, you know, everything I did the, the eight or nine years before that. Um, and what that then led to, because we're coming back to this, was, all right, now nobody was investing privately in real estate because they all got their heads handed to them in the later 80s and early 90s. So real estate got submitted back to the capital markets. And before we knew it, starting around early 90s, what came back? But what you started in the 70s, 60s, and 70s were REITs. Right. You know, real estate investment trusts. Um, uh, you you never went back to this. So you're taking us back to where we were. You were uh, at, with with the Bass Brothers, um, and something happened here in Philadelphia, where you're where you're from, and uh, you know that made you come back. That's a great story. You, you want to? Well, no, I never moved from Philadelphia. I lived here the whole time and commuted oh. to uh, Texas. Well, uh, I meant in terms of, of yeah, your focus in terms of your your, right. your, your work and everything. So they originally uh, asked me in 1976 to uh, move to Texas, and uh, Sandy, my wife, and I went down to uh, see what it was all about, and we came back and. You know, I followed the boss of our family, Sandy, who said, uh, we're not going to move. <laughs> and so I called Richard Rainwater and I said, uh, we're not going to move, but uh, can I do it from here? I have all the banks and all the lenders up here, and I've got airplanes in the airplane, and so let, let's just uh, try and do it here. And he said, I'll check with Sid Bass, and he came back 20 minutes later and says, you're done. Okay, let's get started. Good. So, so uh, that's that's when you uh, were, were working with them. And then there was a project... Um, that was here. Now, for, for our listeners, um, because you know that we're based in Philadelphia, but you also know, if you've been listening to me for many years now, that you know, we talk about projects and real estate that relates all over the country and even sometimes uh, internationally. But we find that whenever my guests are from Chicago, from Philadelphia, from wherever, that we find examples that are terrific, uh, that are really found again and again from coast to coast and from north to south and big cities and smaller towns. In Philadelphia, the, the iconic center of our central business uh, district area, the center of Philadelphia, is Rittenhouse Square. Um, and uh, right, very, very the most expensive real estates around Rittenhouse Square. Um, right in the middle of, of town, and lots of, and it's very high residential as well as being surrounded by office buildings just a, a block or two away. So there was a project that was started that David's going to tell us about. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a pretty good experience on Rittenhouse Square before I, uh, I, I tell you about the Rittenhouse. Yeah. And uh, we had financed uh, its Colonial Mortgage Service Company, 1845 Walnut Street, which was the mutual benefit building at the time. And uh, they were building similar buildings all around the country. And then one of the first projects I did with the Basses in 1976, at the end of 76, was the Dorchester. Ah, uh, yeah. The Dorchester was a 541-unit uh, building. And um, how you make all the right decisions for all the wrong reasons, that was uh, one of the things that I did. Uh, there was a mayoral election, and there was a, uh, um, a push to, uh, uh, to have a rent control. And so... I called the Basses and I said, if there's rent control, I want to file for a condominium. And uh, Richard said, uh, go ahead, Richard Rainwater. And he said, go ahead and do all the work you have to do, but don't file until uh, you know we, we see the results of the election. So uh, we had our architectural work done and we had our legal work done and we just put the stuff in a file. The election came about and there was no the rent control. Uh, but one of the other properties in town, the Society Hill Towers, which is uh, three property, three buildings, about 750 units, uh, one of the Chicago developers came in and sold it out in a matter of weeks. And so there was a big clamor for to, condos. For yeah. condos. And city council, in its all in wisdom, decided they're going to pass a law against condos. Because that was a there, moratorium. Yeah. It was a, not a moratorium. They passed a law that says you can't file for a condominium unless you have done it already, you know, and you're ready to go. But because we have, we can't lose all these renters who are living in the city. Right, right. So at the time they passed this thing, and we were the only building that was ready to go within their 30-day or 60-day limit. And so the Chicago developers started to come in and say, uh, we've, we've checked on this, and you're the only building that can be built. 
So we uh, were able to sell yeah. it to one of the Chicago developers. And, and this was, for our listeners, this is around like 1980, give or take a year or so. I was 77. Uh, 77? Yes. Okay, because the, the wave of the, the, quote, Chicago condo right. converters came right. in, uh, you know, the late 70s, early right. early 80s. We had a, a wave of it, and everybody was afraid of uh, what's going to happen to all these renters. Be- before we though, move into the Rittenhouse story, which I really want to get to, I just want to welcome any of our new listeners who have joined us since we started the hour. Uh, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour here on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane, an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. And my day job is I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer for 40 years as a partner at the firm of Stevens & Lee. Our guest today is David Marshall, chairman and CEO of Amerimar, one of the premier real estate developers, uh, certainly based here in Philadelphia, but as we're hearing from David all over, we will hear more about that uh, in, in a moment. But if you want to join our conversation or ask a question, please feel free to call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We're live in the studio today on Friday, March 16th. If you're listening now, please call. Otherwise, feel free to email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'll be happy to address your questions uh, either on my next show or by by email. So again, feel free to call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So back to David. Um, we're teasing our audience about this incredible story that at least I find incredible um, on Rittenhouse Square, the toniest uh, square and 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 park uh, right in the center of town in Philadelphia, uh, which had this real disaster for. We were debating before the show started just how many years, what, what you count from, but from anywhere from 10 to 15 years of, of angst. So there was go no, ahead. Now I'll get into the history of the Rittenhouse. Uh, the Rittenhouse uh, started in 1970, uh, and it was started by a developer, Jack Walgen. Let, let me just interrupt. So when you say the Rittenhouse, which it, it, what today is the Rittenhouse is a, is a mixed uh, Rittenhouse hotel and condominium and probably right. one of the premier addresses in town that today. But go back to you. Okay. Yeah. Um, it had a different name in 1970, but it, it kept on changing its uh, uh, purpose over the years. But uh, the building started, it was, as I said, owned by the developer uh, who was also the owner of the Colonial Mortgage Service Company that I had worked for at the time. So uh, one of the things he was trying to do was to make it bigger, and there's a church next door to it. And uh, I came up with the idea, which I later paid for, <laughs> the idea of making a deal with the church who had uh, uh, had a, a parcel of ground and Jack had promised them office space in the building. Uh, anyway. Uh, the the uh, building was stopped in 1971 with the rebar sticking out because there was a fight between uh, Mr. Walgen and the then First Pennsylvania Bank. Uh, that sat vacant for until 1981. And in 1981, there was a Bank of America committed to do the loan. And the building was topped off. And in 1983 or 4, it was stopped. And there was a... Uh, proceedings that uh, the bank had to uh, implement, and that was there was a personal guarantee by the developer and a guarantee not only to prepay the loan but to finish the building. Uh, He hadn't done it, and there was a protracted litigation that took place over a period of time, and without getting into any of the real details of it, um, the developer won the case, got a $13 million check from Bank of America, and Bank of America took, took, took title to the building, and they they put another contract to one developer who uh, built a fence, and uh, that was all he built, and that lasted for a couple of years, and the fence turned different colors. And uh, in 1987, when the bank was going to pull the plug on that developer, I was calling the bank, and I said, if, if anything, I, I'm familiar with tortious interference with the contract, and if everything's going well, God bless you. If it's not going well, I'm interested. They said, we're putting it up for sale on Tuesday of next week. So this was a Friday. I said, I want to go in there with a micro. Saturday, we took the outside hoist up this building, and I hate heights. And this building had been sitting vacant for several years, uh, rusted, and, I mean, it was scary. And um, So this several years that David's talking about was, if you add up all the numbers, is, is more than 10 years of this partially built building 
sitting there and to the, the people walking through the park every day, and I was one of them, it seems like rusting away and falling apart in the most valuable, beautiful part of Philadelphia for, depending on what, what you add up, but, you know, from when it started in the, in the uh, uh, you know, I guess the late 70s. Is that uh, right? Did it I started in 70, 71. Yeah, and then through 1990, it was almost 20 years of this thing just being derelict until, until you right. came in and finished it off. We bought it in 87, and uh, I was. they said, do you want to see the plans? I said, no, I want to make my own decisions. Right. I want to do a – the property was supposed to be a hotel. Then it was supposed to be an apartment house. Then it was supposed to be an office building. That was, I mean, at every iteration and every time they changed iterations, they had to change the column spacing. And <laughs> I mean, it was just a mess. And our garage, if you were, uh, you know, uh, Earnhardt, you, you could have a hard time parking your <laughs> Volkswagen there. So we, we figured one of the first things we had to do was build a new parking garage. Yeah. And, and, but, the, and the result is one of the, one of the toniest and most beautiful buildings and, uh, uh, in Philadelphia. We're going to hear a little bit more about that and how that segued into some other uh, projects. But we have a, a patient caller, uh, John in Massachusetts, uh, who I think wants to uh, join our conversation. John, welcome to the Real Estate Hour. How can we help you? Hi, hi there. Thank you. Uh, my question is related. I mean, with all this experience um, you folks have, as, as I'm thinking about my real estate investments, um, I'm trying to understand you know, what triggers, what are good criteria to trigger a decision from buying to rent uh, or building to rent versus you know, building condos or building homes, what criteria do you guys use? Uh, you know, what frameworks do you think about when you when you make that transition in the market? And, and, and you know, when does it occur? How far in advance of changes in the market does that actually occur? Well, John, John, that is a great question. Thank you so much for calling. So the question is, if you're developing a multifamily building, you know, should that be rental? Should that be condo? How do you make that decision when in the process? And we've seen a lot of projects that have started one way and gone the other way, but you couldn't have a better, more experienced uh, developer who makes those kind of decisions uh, daily for years than David Marshall. So, David, what what advice would you give, or how do you explain that situation? Uh, you let the market dictate. You right. don't. It, this is not something you do for your own ego. It's something you do for your market. And um, sometimes you have a very strong rental market. Sometimes you have a very weak rental market and a very strong condominium market. And uh, you decide accordingly. Now, you, you find there's certain amenities that you have to put in in a condominium because the people are owners. And there's certain criteria that you look at uh, very carefully before you make that decision. And uh, sometimes you build a rental with the idea that as if and when it could go condo, you do that. So uh, those are some of the uh, things you look at. But it's really the market that dictates. But but as you, you just made an excellent point is that renters uh, have different expectations than owners, and maybe a better way to say it is that owners have higher expectations than renters um, in terms of soundproofing, in terms of privacy, in terms of you know, amenities and qualities and things like that. Um, or at least it used to be that way. Now, now that now renters, multifamily amenities and gyms and things like that are getting more and more important, but it's still different. Um, so I, I think your point, David, is that. If, if you're wise, you're going to build a building, even if the market is for multifamily rentals, that could be converted to condominiums if necessary, as opposed to building something that would not meet the expectations of owners. That's correct. Yeah. So one, one of our, uh, now, uh, now Merrimar, and you, we're going to talk more about this uh, over the course of the rest of the show, uh, you develop multifamily, you develop hotels, offices, uh, tech, uh, you know, very specialized properties. Uh, you know, all all over. One one of our uh, developers based here has been a guest on my show, Carl Dranoff. Um, recently started a building within the last couple of years. Started a building exactly one way, John. Um, he started it as uh, multifamily, and he felt that the multifamily uh, marketplace was getting saturated, and abruptly, right in the middle of the project, switched to condominiums. And I think he's done it the other way around too. So, uh, uh, how do, how does that impact the financing, David? If you're if you're uh, if you're already into the project and you've got your lender, does does that affect it in your experience? Well, you've got to. Comp- I, I think you've got to complete it the way it was originally uh, financed, and uh, they're going to dictate to it. But uh, when you're doing a condominium, you're really doing a bunch of individual financings. Uh, 
after you got it completed. And what we did uh, on the Dorchester when that was converted to a condominium is we went back and basically paid off the mortgage, the first mortgage with Prudential at the time, and uh, got individual uh, financing. And with the Bass Brothers, we didn't need a construction loan. We just uh, did the work first and then uh, sold it off. And it was a very successful sale. Yeah. Uh, so, John, there's a lot of factors there, but I think the very first thing David said was the market's got to dictate. And uh, so you, you've got to make sure you know your market and know, you know, it's the, the demand and the supply and demand of uh, multifamily rentals versus ownership. And then does your location, is your location suitable for either? Is the quality of the building suitable for either? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Did we answer your question, John? You did. Yes, you got to stay nimble. Very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Thank you for calling. We'll let, we'll let you go, uh, David. Before we take our our mid our midway break, uh, I wanted you to you had some more thoughts about uh, the Rittenhouse project. Well, one yeah. of the things that we did with the Rittenhouse, we decided how we're going to allocate the space, and uh, we had a project in Denver, Denver Place, that had uh, basically uh, three uh, towers. Uh, Two of them were uh, uh, offices, and one of them was a hotel condominium. Um, and the, uh, the the office space actually was three towers. Uh, two of them were connected together. And we converted the apartment uh, and the hotel to give all the services of the hotel, which was an embassy suite, to the apartment dwellers. And this took the rentals and the apartment from basically 5% when we bought it uh, to full, and uh, it, it was a tremendous amenity. And when I did the Rittenhouse, or when we did the Rittenhouse, we uh, did the same concept. We made it a hotel, and we made it a uh, condominium. And I uh, left three floors at the time to swing either way, whichever was better as we saw what was developing in the market. And so we did a basically a 110-room hotel and a 153-unit condominium. Um, the the fabulous benefit that Amerimar has in you personally, and, and, and I know your sons are in the business, and we talk a little bit about that, and, uh, but um, is the diversity and experience in terms of all the different sectors. I know when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about Denver Place, we're going to talk about Pier 39 in San Francisco, uh, Desert Highlands Golf uh, uh, Resort that you developed in Scottsdale, uh, and a very famous building that's been in the news, 666 Fifth Avenue, uh, that you've had uh, some some fingerprints on over, over time. Uh, but we are going to take just a few-minute break uh, right now, listeners, so just please stay with us. Uh, if you want to join our conversation or call in during the break, feel free at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Again, I'm your host Bob Lane, and we're talking with David Marshall, the CEO and Chairman of Merrimar. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 111. Here again is Bob Lane. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, thank you for staying with us during the break, and welcome to any new listeners who have just joined us. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm a commercial real estate lawyer. Uh, a partner at the firm of Stevens and Lee by day and by night, an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is David Marshall, the chairman and CEO of Amerimar, one of the most highly regarded and diversified uh, private uh, real estate developers uh, based in Philadelphia, but for projects all over the country. We're going to talk about a few of them from, from coast to coast pretty much in, in a moment. Uh, but w- one of the things, uh, David, and I, I, I just th- thought I'd, it would be a good idea to start our, our half hour off, uh, our second half hour off with this. You, you've had tremendous public profile positions uh, in Philadelphia. You're clearly one of the more um, uh, highly respected, if not one of the most highly respected uh, members of the community, not just in real estate, but you, you're the uh, chairman of the Central Philadelphia Development Corporation, which in Philadelphia is one of the major public interest companies for the development of, of Center City, Philadelphia. Um, you're the chairman of the Investment Committee for Fox Chase Cancer uh, Center. You're, you're, you've been involved with uh, the merger between Fox Chase and Temple. I mean, you've always seen so many uh, major uh, public service and public uh, uh, 
uh, interest events here and in, in, in organizations in Philadelphia. Um, I know that that's just a, a passion of yours, but your real estate career has enabled you, I think, to be able to do that, and, and also your interest in public uh, affairs has perhaps helped your, your real estate career. How, how is that, has that been a challenge? Has that been a, a sacrifice? Has that been an enhancement? Have you, have you thought much about that? I know you have. We've talked about it. Well, before you get into my breaths of my obituary, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's uh, something that if you're fortunate enough to be able to do things, uh, I've always been interested in a lot of uh, aspects of what's going on in the community. And it's, uh, it's something that I don't do too much thinking about as to why I want to do it. If it's something that's a passion of mine, like cancer, um, this station also is one of the sponsors for Damon Runyon Cancer Foundation. Yes, it is. Yeah. And uh, I've been on that board for about 35, 40 years, and uh, I was chairman of Fox Chase Cancer Center. And then, as you were saying, I've been active in the community here. And I think it's just a wonderful way of uh, spending your time and efforts and, uh, and money. Yeah. And, and Philadelphia certainly, and not only Philadelphia, but the much larger community has really benefited by it. And it's uh, real estate. I, I know you do it because it is your passion. And that's what I, what, what, but the real estate uh, community um, and, and, and industry really benefits by leaders like yourself who do get involved and give back. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a really wonderful thing. Um, how does how does so, I mean most of your activities that I know about are, are here in this in this area, um, but you've been a, a tremendously successful developer. Now let's let's take your um, uh, <clears throat> the, the project in California, Pier thirty nine. Uh, Pier thirty nine. Um, what brings you way out there? How does how do, how do you manage that? We had offices when I was uh, with Bass Brothers Realty uh, throughout the country, and two other people, uh, Bob Moore and Molly South, uh, were from Homeart, which was the then big Sears Roebuck, not the, what's uh, morphed into what it is today. And uh, they joined our company, and they were vice presidents of Bass Brothers Realty. Uh, they found a specialty shopping center in California that was uh, in deep financial trouble, and they uh, brought it to uh, our company, and we spent an awful lot of time underwriting it. Uh, it was spectacular real estate. And we thought that it was poorly managed and uh, didn't take advantage of the uh, the great sites. And we spent after after we decided to do it, um, we we bought it and fixed it up. And today it is one of the highest volume shopping centers in the world. Uh, it is it draws, uh, I guess the second or third year we were up to 13 million people a year coming to Pier 39. We acquired the rights uh, from the city to. Uh, run the blue and gold and the red and white fleets on the San Francisco Harbor. And uh, then the sea lions took over one of our piers. <laughs> and uh, we had to uh, decide on what to do. And our people called up and they said, we've got a, a big situation on our hands. And I said, what's that? And they told us we have the whole pier covered with sea lions and uh, <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. If we chase them away, the environmentalists will kill us. And if we uh, cater to them, uh, it could be a, bo uh, a bonanza for our tourist business. So we decided to cater to them, and CNN ran a half-hour program on how well we treat the sea lions. <laughs> and uh, so that was just a, you know, a little thing. But anyway, one of the things that uh, Bob and Molly did uh, when we first started uh, looking at Pier 39, we got into a cab at the airport and said, take me to Pier 39. And the cab driver turns around and says, why? <laughs> and we figured, we got a problem here. So uh, we, uh, we initiated a, a program after we bought it to give out free coffee to all the cab drivers. But they uh -huh. had to have a rubber bottom cup that we would give them. It said Pier 39, and they had to leave it on the dashboard. That was before cup holders. And uh, all of a sudden, we had 10,000 ambassadors instead of 10,000 people that didn't want to take you to Pier say, 39. Say, why? Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, and it worked, and we brought in uh, a lot of local uh, bars and restaurants and stuff like that, and it's just been a tremendous asset for us. You know, what, one of the things that over, uh, you know, as, as a lawyer and sometime been involved in some, some development um, that's always fascinated me um, is the, in the retail industry and, and having that kind of, is, is how, how a developer puts together the tenant mix and knows you just mentioned about local bars and restaurants, but I'm sure you have, you have other retailers and some local ones and perhaps you considered or had, uh, you know, chains and things like that. 
we talked a little bit about, it was a great caller uh, with a question about how you decide between condos and, and rentals. I mean, uh, in the retail area, what, what, do you, what goes into picking uh, what retailers are going to be in there? Actually, you market to everybody and see what, uh, what cards you have to play. And uh, you're trying to get a tenant mix that uh, draws for other people as well as uh, the destination uh, tenant that you're working with. So it, it's, uh, it's a uh, skill that, uh, as I said, uh, we had two partners that were specializing in, in the retail industry, and they did more of the picking than I did, quite honestly. Yeah. So, that's the, so, so if you don't have it yourself, that's, that's actually wise advice to some of our would-be developers, is find people who, have the, who are experienced in the art and science of tenant mix, if it's retail, or uh, I guess you can't always count on having sea lions and seals there at, uh, <laughs> as your draw. Um, <clears throat> So, and then morphing into a totally different kind of development, your, your Desert Highlands Golf Project in Scotland. Um, Scottsdale. Uh, I'm sorry, Scottsdale. Yeah, well, golf originated in Scotland, but right. uh, not the British Open yet here, but Scottsdale, yeah. Um, tell us about that project. Uh, that was the second golf course we developed, and uh, this was out of our Denver office. And uh, the, uh, the fellows out there did a golf course with some of the locals in, in Vail which was Singletree, which is now part of uh, Sun and Alp. And Jack Nicholas was the designer. And uh, we came up with a, another partner, uh, a future partner, uh, Lyle Anderson, uh, contacted us, and he wanted to do a top-notch uh, golf course. And so uh, we worked with Lyle, and uh, we made it a signature Nicholas course, which was uh, a little more expensive, obviously, than a regular Nicholas company design. And... Uh, uh, Jim Bartlett, who was our partner uh, from uh, Denver, came down and moved down to uh, uh, Scottsdale, to Phoenix. And we we not only developed one of the most beautiful golf courses in the world, but we did the Skins Tournament. That was the first and second Skins Tournament with Nicholas Watson, Palmer, and Player. Oh, God, my father loved those. <laughs> they were just the best. <laughs> and I loved watching them with them. And uh, the uh, I, I played the front nine of the, uh, of the Pro-Am with... Uh, uh, Watson and the back nine with Palmer. Wow! And wow. Uh, those are times we won't forget. And actually, my son who was with me, Stephen, was uh, trailing along, and my other son Jerry was caddying for me. <laughs> so uh, we made it a little family outing. It was really a lot of fun. Well, well, golf is certainly, and maybe we'll make this the uh, the golf uh, ten minutes here for because it's near and dear to both your heart and my heart. And with Tiger Woods, I don't know how he's doing today if he started yet, but he was one shot off the lead. Yesterday at Bay Hill, and I know last week he came in second. So I think the golfing world, and even those who aren't in golf, you know, are all just fascinated by uh, what's going on now. So, uh, you know, golf has gone through its ups and downs over the years. Golf courses, yes. Um, so uh, and they take forever to develop, don't they? I mean, to, to to get the land, to get the approvals, to to lay it out, to design it. It takes a uh, while, you know. That's that's for sure. Um, you know, you you need probably uh, the average is about 170 acres, but you have like courses like Marion on something like 130, but it's really squeezed in there, and it's still a spectacular course. Yep. But uh, you know, golf has uh, had its ups and downs, and actually, uh, General Electric has been my partner both in Denver and in Philadelphia in the Rittenhouse uh. General Electric Pension Fund at the time, and uh, they were spectacular partners, and they were also the financial backers of Callaway. Ah, and yeah. so uh, Dale Fry, who was the chairman of uh, the pension fund, took me out there one day. And w when when you couldn't get a Callaway club, when they came out with the Big Bertha, and uh, Dale says, "Go pick out a club. You'll get our price on it." And uh, so they said, "Okay, it'll be another six weeks." And Dale says, <laughs> "Nope, it'll be the next one off the line." <laughs> can, can can a developer make money? Uh, generally speaking, there's always exceptions. Uh, just developing a golf course, or do you really need to have it as part of a residential uh, and, and mixed-use uh, community? Because generally we see, you know, going with Arvita, and I know you've had experience with Arvita in Florida and elsewhere, um, does these massive golf course communities. I think uh, from my standpoint, to do a playing golf course doesn't give you the, the capital uh, appreciation that you get by selling the golf lots. And uh, there's a lot of things that you look at when you're doing a golf course. Uh, you do not want what they call a, uh, a single um, a golf uh, hole and then uh, one on each side. What you want to do is break them up so you get uh, homes on both sides of each, le and, uh, on each uh, uh, fairway. 
and uh, it increases the value uh, tremendously. So the design of the golf course is not just to make a challenging great golf course, but it's also to enable and uh, facilitate the residential development around it. Right. And Nicholas, to me, was the best in the world. And to have someone who's had you know absolutely spectacular results in his whole life in golf, um, I look at a painting that's three feet by five feet, and it's selling for $150 million. And then I look at a golf course that's 170 acres, uh, with a Jack Nicklaus signature on it, and I think that uh, why not get a uh, top-notch price for that uh, as well. And if you look at Desert Highlands today, it is just spectacular. It's gorgeous, and we, we sold it out. Yeah. Well, it's an exciting uh, sector of the of the real estate uh, uh, industry to develop. Uh, before we go on to our next uh, thought, though, I want to welcome any new listeners and say hello to our uh, present uh, listeners. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. Uh, and if you're live in the, st- uh, we're live in the studio today on Friday, March 16th. So feel free to call. We still have plenty of time left at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I'm your host Bob Lane, and you're listening to Business Radio and Sirius XM one eleven. As we're talking to our guest David Marshall, the chairman and CEO of Amerimar, one of the major uh, developers. Uh, uh, based in this area of Philadelphia, but we're talking about projects all over. So, um, <clears throat> David, you had mentioned uh, when you're talking about uh, you know the playing with with Watson and uh, and having your sons, uh, Caddy, uh, Jerry, and Stephen, both of them who I know, um, and uh, they're they're in the business with you. So not only do they did they caddy when they were little, but uh, but uh, for you, but uh, now that they're uh, grown, established real estate. Uh, uh, industry uh, experts on their own. How how did that all evolve? Uh, how was it working with your with your sons, and how did you transform? I know it's morphed a lot over the years. Jerry started with me when he was getting his MBA at. He's uh, the Wharton. older of your. He's sons. He's the older yep. of the two, and he worked with me for I guess about ten eleven years until year two thousand, and uh, he was realizing, and I was realizing that he's a lot smarter than I am. And he works a lot harder, and he decided that he wanted to split off and do his own thing. So we made a, uh, a situation where we own and operate Amerimar Realty. He owns and operates Amerimar Enterprises. And uh, I have a very tiny piece of uh, his thing just so that I can put my arm around him and say, how are we doing? Right. <laughs> uh, but it's really his company, and he's gotten into this data center business. He has seven spectacular properties under his, uh, and his, under his control, and he's just— He's knocking the cover off the ball, and I'm so proud of him. And uh, Stephen has been with me since he graduated from Penn, other than he spent a uh, couple of years trying to be in the Olympics, and uh, he and I traveled all over the country together. Uh, I was uh, carrying his uh, lunch and, uh, and equipment. <laughs> he was doing all the sailing. And he got to the finals in the Olympic trials, but uh, then he joined me right. after yeah. he didn't make that one, one boat out of a 1,000 that was going to go to the Olympics. And that was in Atlanta, and he said, uh, after he finished, he said, well, how about uh, Australia next time? I said, this one was on me, that one's on you. So he came with me. Yeah, And and not only uh, did he come with you then, but he's uh, promised me that the next time you come on my show, you're going to come on together, and uh, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, how sons and fathers can, can do business together. One of, one of the, I know, a major uh, topic out there in the world, not necessarily in real estate, but is family businesses and, and passing the torch in generations. And I've had some guests on over time who really just consult and deal with family businesses. So I think that's a topic beyond today, but would be a terrific one for our listeners. So uh, follow along, listeners, because uh, coming soon we'll, we'll have a show on, on, on that in the real estate industry. Um, <clears throat> By the way, his, yeah. his uh, data center company is called Neutrality. I have to give them a plug, and he's doing a great job with them. Oh, great. Yeah. That's it. Uh, Actually, you 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 developed um, the, the 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 old Smith Klein building as a uh, tech center. Um, is that, uh, that that was really the first uh, uh, one of the first things that Jerry did? Uh, I had Jerry a little was, tiny piece of that, but he he did all the work on it, and uh, that was uh, how we tried out. And he did a great job building it, but uh, he found out that the the real important uh, aspect of those buildings is that uh, all of the people, the AT&Ts and Verizons and L3s and Equinix and all, they all want to be together. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to branch out and go to another building. They all want to be together. And Jerry came up with that uh, concept, and then he did 401 North Broad, which is 1,100,000 square feet in, on Broad Street. 
and they were all there, and now he's improved it tremendously. Yeah, and for our listeners, because this is going on all over um, the, the, the country, and, and, and Jerry was prescient uh, back then, because I remember, um, as I mentioned before, David's the chairman of Central Philadelphia Development Corporation, which is a major engine here, you know, public interest organization for promoting development, uh, real estate and physical development, infrastructure development, um, and even things like education here in, in Philadelphia. I was uh, a predecessor of, of David's in that organization. And back then, we were trying to get the uh, what is now Citizens Park Baseball Stadium down in, in Center City, Philadelphia, like Camden Yards in, uh, in, in Baltimore um, and many other downtown uh, baseball and other athletic facilities that have been tremendous economic generators. Um, and in fact, that building, which is well over a million square feet, um, was was vacant at the time, and there were some other collateral buildings that were being considered for that. And when that wasn't going to happen, I know you and Jerry swooped in and made it a data center, which nobody anticipated. That this is what maybe fifteen years ago, more. Uh, probably uh, about twenty years. Twenty ago. years yeah. ago, yeah. And uh, I remember in 401 North Broad, which that was the hub for one of my clients, Sprint, um, at the time for, uh, you know, telecommunications and data centers. And and that's before the Comcasts of the world were coming in and building these buildings where everybody was congregating. And it was, uh, and so that's been a very successful, I gather, uh, segment of the the, uh, industry. Yes. For, for, for Jerry, yeah. Give you one word answer, yes. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> um, you know, another building that's uh, been in the news a lot, um, 666 Fifth Avenue, uh, because of uh, you know, Trump's uh, you know, location there. We're not going to get into any of that, that aspect of it um, and Jared Kushner's o- ownership of it. But that's a building that you've had fingerprints on. Um, yeah, we put it under contract, uh, I guess it was uh, early 80s. It was in New York. It's the top location you could possibly want. And uh, we went in with uh, Tishman Lazard, and uh, they invited us to come in as uh, financial partners with them. And uh, we started asking questions, and we found out that we better do the underwriting. We brought up 14 people for two weeks and sat in the buildings, went over all the leases and stuff like that. And one of the things that we came across was the fact that there was on a ground lease, which we knew, but we didn't know the terms of it. And that was originally done with Prudential, and they had sold it off. And so we decided that uh, you know, this was something that we didn't want to be involved with, and we flipped it to Integrated Resources and uh, did, did all right with it. Your background, and, and I've known you a long time, and I'm learning a lot more about you just in the, in our conversation today, but it's so diverse and so uh, um, extensive. Um, you're probably as well-situated as anybody um, to th- tell us a little bit about what you see coming. So in our, in our last, uh, you know, segment of our show, you know, what, what is a Merrimar, you know, thinking of going forward, and you personally, you know, what do you, what do you see in terms of... Uh, you know, multifamily, uh, millennials, uh, the, the generation after millennials, the driverless cars. I'm, I'm giving you a lot of things to pick from. But, um, you know, what, 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 what's, what's on your plate? One of the things we're looking at now uh, is uh, one of my attorney friends called me up and he said, I have an opportunity for you. I said, what's that? He says, uh, to build a hotel in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. And I said to him, what did I do to you? Lidditz, Pennsylvania. You got to tell people what Lidditz. Uh, it's a, a suburb of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's a small town, absolutely a beautiful little town, and for uh, a number of reasons, it is now the rehearsal capital for the rock and roll industry in the United States, if not the world. And you can't name a uh, top-notch rock and roll uh, person. I'm not allowed to name the names, but if you think of it, they've been there and they've done the rehearsals. Actually, one of them I can name because it's been on, it's on television right now is Soul to Soul with Tim McGraw and, uh, uh, what's her name? She's gorgeous. <laughs> uh, can't think of her name. You're Faith, Hill, Faith, Faith Hill. Faith Hill. Faith Hill. Right. And it's called Soul to Soul. I'll give them a little plug. And uh, they they walked into the studio that uh, Rock Lidditz built, which is 100 feet high and uh, 52,000 square foot building. And they can accommodate everything. And they had the manufacturers of the speakers is uh, Claire. They're right there. Uh, Tate Towers, that's all the staging for the rock and roll industry, as well as the Super Bowl and fantastic people. And Atomic uh, was originally doing the lighting. Now they're doing their stuff. And they built this one building. Then they built another 250,000-square-foot office industrial building where all the suppliers are at. 
And so they wanted a hotel, and we competed against eight other companies, as I recall. And we won the project, and uh, we're under construction now. And actually, Stephen is uh, uh, monitoring that project for us. He's out uh, in Lidditz every week, and it's moving along. Actually, yeah, proud to say it's a little bit ahead of schedule, but we would be quiet about that. And that's unusual, but uh, don't raise expectations. So so for our listeners, Lidditz uh, is in central Pennsylvania. It's, as, as you said, it's a suburb of one of our smaller uh, cities, Lancaster, but well, Lancaster is very well known for a lot of reasons uh, nationally. Um, but do you see that development is going to be moving out um, out of the major cities uh, for these specialized uses? I mean, here's a, here's a town that had, had no profile whatsoever, and because of this development um, is now a, a, a major center, and it's great and an economic booster for that whole region, which was pretty poor, poor area in the post-coal and steel era. This is not in the coal and steel area, the era. Uh, area, area, <laughs> easy for you to say. Um, it is really a very uh, heavy tourist industry, and by coincidence, the three companies grew up in Lidditz, these families, and uh, it has actually been voted one of the nicest towns in the United States. Uh, it got an award for the best town in the United States, Lidditz, and uh, we're very pleased to be there, and Rock Lidditz is the company that these three companies formed, and they bought 95 acres and are developing this whole office, industrial, hotel, you know, rehearsal facilities. And they're just doing a spectacular job, and we're proud to be partners with them on that project. Yeah, that sounds terrific. Do, do you see that kind of uh, uh, you know, development happening? In, 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 I mean, can you foresee that happening in other parts of the country? Is that Not exactly uh, like that. No, no you, you have to look unique at, about that. Yeah, you have yeah. to look at the unique aspect of it because— if you set it up in a major company, a major city in the country, uh, and have a problem with your speakers or a problem with your staging, you've got to ship it back uh, to where they're made and stuff. Here, they're right around the corner oh. or across the street, and so you get things taken care of right away. And, uh, you know, it's we're really excited by uh, the prospects of this thing. It's very unique. So that brings us back to one of the uh, central aspects of real estate for no matter how far we get away from it, location, 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 and whether you're near transportation, whether you've got all those, whether it's labor, transportation, or access, um, um, et cetera. So... Um, uh, you know, we're coming down to the end of uh, of our of our hour because there's just so many other projects that uh, I wanted to talk about. So you have promised to come back and join us. I know you have, and you're, you're going to. I think the pay is good. Yeah, <laughs> the, well, uh, we'll we'll double your salary for the for the for the next one. But I, I want to uh, thank our listeners um, for staying with us and. Uh, our show is repeated throughout the week. As most of you know, you can read more about our shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website, SiriusXM.com slash business radio. If you have a question for us for an idea for a segment, you can write our, to our email address, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And of course, uh, Twitter at BizRadio111. But I'm your host, Bob Lane. You've been listening to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM. I want to thank our very generous guest, David Marshall one of our most highly respected real estate developers and owners based in central Philadelphia for his time and uh, entertaining uh, hour. I also want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for making us sound so good. You guys behind the glass have done a great job as always. Um, and uh, please come join us again next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 